First thing in your notes is this is a gospel of grace review. So 1 Corinthians 15. In order, as we build up to 1 Corinthians 15, um, I want to just kind of just look a little bit at the rhythm, the context of this letter. Okay, The last third of the letter, specifically starting in, in chapter 12, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Chapter 12, remember, was that idea that we are a body made up of many members. And we were looking at it in the context of being a kingdom of priests and the fact that everybody has been given special abilities, unique abilities by God called spiritual gifts and that we're supposed to use those for the common good. Right? That, that's, 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 that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So he's like, you got stuff to do. He's given you, everybody's supposed to be involved. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Interesting, he follows it with 1 Corinthians 13, which is... A lot of times it's called the love chapter. If you've ever been to a wedding, it's like love is patient, love is kind. All that, that whole thing is, is how that begins. It's the love chapter. In there, he makes it very clear that you can do all the things that you do, right? You could go to church. You could, you could sing songs. You could, you could go out and serve. You could do all of these things. You could do miraculous things. But if you have not love, you don't have love. He says it's like a gonging cymbal, right? It's like me trying to play the drums. It doesn't sound good. It's annoying. That's what he's saying. He says you can do everything you do, but if you don't do it with love, it's worthless. So love is a key ingredient. Why you do what you do is super important in the kingdom of God. We do it out of love. And then in chapter 14, he gets back at it, and he goes, he goes he, he's given an example of, it seems like all the people in this Corinthian church are doing stuff. They're doing a lot of things, but they're doing it to be noticed. They're doing it to boost their own ego. They're doing it to try to be important themselves. And he's like, no, no, no. That's not what they're for. You don't do it for your own ego. You do it for the kingdom of God. You do it for the common good. You do it to serve others, not to be served. You use these gifts. And then in chapter 15, he follows that up with what we're going to look at today, that we need to understand the gospel of grace. And he calls it the, uh, I call it the grace effect. So you see this rhythm, he's like, you got to you work hard, but you got to know why you're, you got to do it in love. And you work hard, but you work hard because of this grace, not to earn this grace, not to, not to be somebody, not, not to boost your ego, but it's all about grace. But 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 and 2, says like this. He goes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, I just want you to remember. And so this thing is of first importance. The gospel I preach to you. And what we're going to see is that this gospel is a gospel of grace. I want to remind you that there's this gospel of grace that I preach to you. And we need to stand upon that. We need to receive it and stand upon it. This God's grace. Now God's grace is how he treats us better than we deserve. We need to stand upon the fact that this God has done something on our behalf that we did not deserve. Now, when you think about the idea of grace, if it's unmerited favor, 
You might ask this. You might say, well, does God, does this God only treat his people with favor? Is God only good to people who have received him? The answer is no. I give you some scriptures if you think I'm crazy. Psalms 145.9 says the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is called common grace in theological terms. There is a common grace that God is good to all. It's common to everybody who he's made. Psalm 136.25 He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. He gives food to all flesh. The idea here in this chapter is that your basic, your most basic needs, we should be thankful to God who provides that for us. If you pray, God, thank you for this food, whether you're a Christian or not, that is appropriate. Don't ever go to, they go, I shouldn't be praying and thanking God. No, you should. You should. The very air that you breathe is a gift from God. It's grace. None of us earned air. We didn't earn any of this, is what he's saying. We should be thankful people. <coughs> Psalms 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Everybody who's ever had a child, that's a gift that God gave you. That's why we, 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 our hearts are broken in the foster care system, because that's not the way it should be. You've got a gift. You cherish that gift. You take care of that Give. And as a society, we come along and we do that. Every person has dignity when they get to be an adult. They're still a child of God. That's why when you walk into Starbucks, every single person that's there deserves dignity. They're created by God as a gift. If, if you were in an accident, nobody's an accident. God thoughtfully, intentionally, formed you in the womb and loves you. It's common grace. James picks it up even more than that. He goes, children are a gift from God, but James goes in James 1, 7, he goes, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Every good gift is from this God. We call this common grace. That's not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about something more beautiful, beyond this common grace, it's called saving grace. He's talking about something that beyond all peoples on the earth, his people have to hold on to as a firm foundation. Saving grace. Traditionally, we, we, we talk about it like this. We're saved through faith alone. We're saved through faith alone. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand. It requires faith. What is faith? You might say it like this from this verse. Faith is putting your, your is receiving this gift that God gave you. It's receiving the, the gift of the blood of Jesus, which atones for your sins. And makes you right with God. Receiving that gift. He goes, which you receive. You must receive it. And then you must stand upon it. It's not just a salvation 
gift one time when the day you get saved. It's a life. It's an eternal. You stand upon it. How many of you guys have received the gift of God's forgiveness? How many of you guys stand upon it as the reason why you can stand in, in, in your life? The hope that you have. It's what Paul's talking about. We're saved through faith alone. D.A. Carson is a, a, the, a theologian, scholar, and he said this. Uh, I read it the other day on, on, uh, on Facebook, so it must be true. He goes, <laughs> he goes, you can trust a God who is not only sovereign, but bleeds for you. We put our faith in a God. You can trust a king who, who not only is powerful, but who came and bled for you, sacrificed for you. This is our king. This is, what it, this is what we stand upon. This is, what, this is the reality of being a, a, a people, of being kingdom people. People of his kingdom. That we have this faith in this Jesus who came and died. That's a good king. He sacrificed for us. The ultimate sacrifice. So we have this faith, this saving grace by faith. And you were saved by grace alone. Grace, you might look at it like this. Uh, uh, one of the, this guy, Greer, said that faith, that grace is this. Grace, as a Christian, is understanding that there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Because if he loves you because he loves you, if he loves you by grace, if it's a free gift, if it's unmerited favor, if it's something you didn't deserve, then there would be nothing that you could do to deserve it more. So there's nothing you could do to make him love you more. He loves you because of grace. Not because of what you do, but because of what he's done. And therefore, there's nothing you could do to make him love you any less. Right? We're wracked with guilt and shame. We go through this pattern where we try really hard, and then we fail, and then we want to get away from God. We don't want to look at us like this, and then we want to start working harder and get back over here so that He loves us more, and we, and we worship, and we're in a good place. That's the rhythm that we, that's being human. It started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. It says they, they realized they were naked, and they hid from God, and then God came looking for them and brought them back. That's our pattern. That's grace. God was gracious to Adam and Eve. They, they deserved to go, yeah, go into hiding. You better hide. That's what you would expect from God. I just told you one rule. You couldn't follow one rule. Right? Good, go into hiding. You better hide. There's nowhere you're going to be able to hide. You can try, right? No, but he does. He goes and finds them. He clothes them. He gives them hope. This is grace. You're saved by grace alone. Now, there's a couple of issues that come up when we, when, we, I, when we think about this idea of being saved by grace alone. The first one is this. Some people might question this, trying to understand it as humans, something that is very hard to understand. We ask this question, why would God do that? Don't ask that question. You'll never be able to figure that out. It defies the idea, the logic of grace. He did it. He chose to do that. There's nothing, there's no, there's no, there's no basis, there's no evidence, there's nothing that we did to deserve it, so it doesn't make sense to us. It's grace. But some people might, might ask this, 
if it's a free gift, but I have to choose to believe, then didn't I actually do something? Therefore, isn't there some words involved? Right? There's a huge debate. I don't know the answer to all of these things, right? Many more intelligent people have debated this from a thousand angles, but I know this. If, if he gives you a gift and you receive it, you still can't take credit. If somebody gives you a gift, you do have the option of receiving it or rejecting it. Right? Somebody could give you a gift and you say, no, I'm not taking it. Someone could give you a gift and you can receive it and open it. If you receive it and open it, are you going to thank yourself? Thank you, me, for receiving that gift and being willing to humble yourself and open it. No, it, to me, I just don't understand this logic that somehow you, if you open the, the gift and you receive it, that that's a work. No, it's still God's grace. I'll leave you to whatever theological preference you have, but that's my two cents. So God can be gracious to us, and yet we still have to receive this gift and also can reject it, I believe. The other one is this. Some people might say, if it costs nothing, if it's free, if it's a free gift, then won't many underappreciate it and undervalue it? In other words, what would be the motivation? If it's free, right? If you have no skin in the game, you might say, right? You give something free if it's like that's that's one of the issues that might get brought up sometimes with welfare. If, there's, if it's just given to you all the time and then there's no like value to it, that's one of the things that this passage is talking about. The, the answer is yes, some will undervalue it. Many will undervalue it. Everyone in this room, myself included, undervalues it. That's the whole idea of why we look at it and remind ourselves of it. That we don't want to. That we want it to have its grace effect. The reality is, if, if you truly understand God's grace, it will change everything. I always like to look at it like this. I remember I had a, a friend who went to college at Loyola Marymount, and uh, he had a, a roommate, and they got along really well. They were like best buddies, you know, and I was happy for him because, you know, he wasn't that easy to get along with, to be honest with you. But I was happy he had this real good buddy. Well, I remember one day he came, he came back from for spring break, we were talking, he's like, yeah, my buddy went, like, he, I lost him. I go, what happened? Oh, he fell in love. <laughs> fell in love with this girl, it's like completely changed him, Right? I'm like, yeah, love does that. Love will change you. Love will radically alter you. To the, the fact that if you really love someone, there'll be some evidence, right? Don't women everywhere feel like that? Like, if you really love me, you, you're not always right. I'm not saying that you're always right, but we have this knowledge that somehow, if somebody loves you, there would be some type of evidence. Right? <laughs> all, the, all the girls are like, yeah, Valentine's Day is coming up in the red. Right? <laughs> now, if, if it costs nothing, if it costs nothing, they might undervalue it. Well, if it costs nothing, then you don't understand the gospel of grace. 
First Peter said it was the most costly thing. The blood of Jesus was very costly. It just cost him everything. It cost you nothing because it cost him everything. And he offers that to you. Why? Because he loves you. What would be the response? Oh, that we would fall back in love. That's the grace effect. That you would realize how good he's been to you. That it would that it would dig so deep into you the seed of faith. It would begin to grow. And it would continue to need to be watered. That's why we do communion to remember what he's done. And have each other to remind us. That's why we read the scriptures to know all of these things about what he's done for us. And it would continue to water it. And something would grow out of that. The Bible calls that fruit, right? We, he grows something of this faith, right? It becomes these spiritual fruits, right? Love, joy, peace. Where does all that come from? What I'm telling you is this. It comes from what we're talking about today. This is the core of what it means to be a kingdom person. To understand God's grace. So it's, by, it's through faith. It's by grace. And we're saved in Christ alone. We're going to see this in the next section. One of my favorite Old Testament passages, as a matter of fact, is one of our key verses as a, as a church. It's where we get the name Remembrance. Is Isaiah 26, 13. <coughs> Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, is crying out to God. And he prays this. He goes, Oh, Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring to remembrance. In other words, he's saying, I've been so caught up and captured and moved and motivated by so many things in this life. But now, as I think about you and your goodness and, and, and all of life in, in reflection to that, it doesn't make sense. You alone, on this day, I bring to remembrance. He understands who this God is, what he's done, what he's like, how good he's been. He wants to reorient his whole life towards that, towards being his, his remembrance. I want to remember every day what you've done. And so it's, we're saved in Christ alone, in his name alone. I like to say it like this. To say that you're saved and Jesus is the only answer, to many people that becomes offensive. <laughs> but if you look at it like this, imagine you had, had a medicine cabinet up here, a little medicine cabinet, and there was 30 or 40 medicines, just filled with medicine, right? Does all medicine work for everything? No, there's placebo, there's stuff, there's stuff that has like bad side effects. You don't want to take the wrong medicine. Right? Because it's not going to help you and it might actually hurt you. Well, what if, what if there was one medicine in that whole cabinet that specifically was designed to heal the very thing that, that, that was made you sick? That was killing you? Would you be mad at the doctor for going, yeah, there's 30 or 40 pieces of medicine here that you can chew if let me help you out. It's this one. This is the only one that's actually going to help you. Nobody would be like, oh, what a, what a what a judgmental doctor. Right? What a narrow-minded doctor that is. Nobody would do that, and yet with religion, 
is exactly what we're saying. We're saying you have a real remedy. It's not just this cool concept about spirituality. It's a real problem that's killing you. And there's only one answer. And please don't get mad at me for helping you figure out which one it is. Not because of, of me being smart. Because that very answer came to this earth and proved himself. He's the only way. So it's in Christ alone. This is the God. This is what Paul is saying. He says, This is of first importance. The gospel that I preach to you. It's, it, it, it's you, you, you receive it, you stand upon it. You didn't deserve it. There's nothing you can ever do to earn it. It's grace. And it is in this Jesus alone. He says, the priority of the gospel of grace in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. He says, for I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. I don't know why Paul calls him. I wonder if it bothered uh, Peter. I always wonder that when he called him Cephas. But I don't know. But he calls him Cephas here. Then, then to the twelve. Right? He's referring to those who were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. What, G what, what Paul is saying here is Jesus rose from the dead. Visibly. Physically rose from the dead. He was here on earth for about 40 days. And he's saying that he publicly showed himself to a crowd of, of, of 500 brothers. If there was women and, and children there, then there would have been a, a crowd even bigger than that. He goes, 500 brothers at one time. And he goes, and they're still alive. Many of them are still alive. Go ask them. What is he, what is he assuming? Paul's assuming that there's already people talking about this. People never refuted this letter. They didn't go, oh yeah, well we will talk to them and we can't find them. CNN never came along and went like, oh we, we interviewed some of these people and they said, no, it wasn't true. They couldn't do that because they knew it was true. Paul's making an amazing claim here. 500 people don't hallucinate on, on any type of LSD or drugs, by the way, and have the same hallucinations. Right? This is, this is real deal. Jesus was there, 500 witnesses. If you had three witnesses in a court case, It'd be locked tight. Imagine if, if you were, if there was a court case, there's only about, you know, maybe less than 100 people here. Five times as many as you are here showed up at court all to testify about one thing. Would you guys be like, wow, that'd be pretty hard to defeat? That's what he's saying. And he goes, then he appeared to James. That's radical. He appeared to James. Who's James? James is Jesus' brother. If you look at, the, if you look at the, the Gospels, James, his brothers, his family, they thought Jesus was crazy during his earthly ministry. It says that. They thought he was nuts. Now, any of you got, raise your hand if you have a brother or sister. Okay. Imagine you being 30 to 33 years old and trying to convince your brother or sister that you're God. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He goes, James, his own brother, after all that he saw, with all the evidence, actually believed. And then to 
last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul. In your notes, it becomes clear that Jesus came in love to reconcile us to God. It's the very foundational idea as a Christian, right? We call John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that for all who would believe or receive this, they would have the right to be children of God. He would, he would reconcile them to this God. He would take that which is in the way between God and man, there's something in the way separating them. He would take that which is in the way and put them together again, reconcile them, put them in a relation, a right relationship. That's what Jesus does. Because Jesus came in love to reconcile us to God. Let it be, we have compelling evidence about this. We have compelling evidence, he's saying. There's, he says, according to the scriptures, that's pointing out the fact that in the Old Testament, there's all of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. That Jesus hung out with, with, with some guys, some ordinary guys like fishermen and stuff like that. And he was able to somehow use them and empower them to transform the world to where we're meeting here today based on what they claim about the person that they follow. Let that sink in for a moment. That's revolutionary. People killed them. Crucified Peter upside down. Boiled John trying to kill him and weren't able to. Some of them were eaten or dressed up like sheep and literally put out in the field and animals came and ate them alive. All along the way, they were saying, all you got to do is say you don't follow this Jesus and you are lying and then they'll spare your life. None of them, none of them were willing to lay that down. If it was a lie... Why would you die for a lie? Those people believed it. They passed it along. 500 witnesses at once, he's saying. All of this evidence. We have compelling evidence. What I want you to see is this. Jesus came. Why? We didn't deserve it. He came because of grace. He left us more than enough evidence to believe. Why? Grace. And lastly, we are called to pass along this gospel. Paul says, he says, I delivered this message to you. That's how it says it in the ESV. I delivered this message to you. The NIV says it like this. I passed along this message to you. The NRSV says, I handed on this message to you. Craig Keener is an, a first century expert on Jewish culture and, and Greek culture, the time when, when all of this stuff is being written. He says this about this verse. He says, this, I delivered to you, this is the language of what scholars call tradition. And he defines it. He says, Jewish teachers would pass on their teachings to their students, who would in turn pass them on to other students. This is the essence of being kingdom people and understanding God's grace. That we realize this message that we receive now becomes a responsibility to go out and pass it on to other people. We call it being a disciple-making disciple. 
We're, we're making disciple-making, disciples who make, disciple-making, disciples who make, disciple-making, disciples. That's been happening since, since the beginning of, of Jesus ascending and giving this ministry. Go and make disciples. And they went and made disciples, and they went and made disciples, and they made disciples. What are you supposed to do as a kingdom people? What do we do in this race? I think we're going to make disciples. We're going to be disciples. We're going to make disciples. It's everyone's mission as a disciple-maker, as a kingdom people. Lastly, we'll talk about this. He says, now, now Paul wants to give a personal testimony of the effects of grace on his life. The effects of, this, of God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11, he goes like this. He goes, for I am the least of these apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's Paul's story. He was trying, he was killing Christians. And then he was on this road to Damascus, the famous road to Damascus, and Jesus made himself known to him and changed everything. He offered him grace. Grace changed his life. It was a game changer. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of uh, the grace of God is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. The first thing that I think Paul's trying to convey here is this. By grace, you are more than you deserve. Let that sink in for a second. What I'm saying is this. Is that by grace, you, each one of you, and me, are more than we deserve to be. You can do a lot to try to prepare yourself. You can do a lot to try to, to build up your resume. But the plan that God has for you is more than you deserve. That's what Paul realizes. Paul actually went through all of this work to do everything he could to be the best Jew uh, he could. And he was persecuting the church because he thought it was the right thing to do. He thought Jesus was crazy, just like his brothers once did. He thought Jesus was nuts. He didn't believe. And he thought these people who are following him are actually taking the traditions of Judaism. And then, but God, the grace of God, overwhelmed him and revealed to him that he was true, that Jesus was true. He goes, Saul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, imagine, he's already ascended to heaven, he's not there physically, you're walking along, you're going to kill some people, right? You got some people, going to kill some people with you, right? And you think you're right, you ever think you're right, you're all prideful, I'm right, they're wrong, I'm going to kill them, right? That's, it. That's his whole deal. He's walking along and all of a sudden, here's a voice, and he gets all blind, and he goes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Falls to the ground, right? Changes his life. That's a testimony. That's what he's saying. He goes, he came to me when I, when I didn't deserve it. I was, I was the last person that deserved it. I was his enemy. He came to me. By grace, you're more than you deserve. It takes faith to believe this type of grace. A lot of people struggle with this. Like, why does God love me? Why would you love me? Why? You ask that question a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, I get it. It's a futile question. You'll never get a good answer. You'll never be able to figure it out. It's a mystery. He loves you. There's no good reason. Really, I haven't given him one. 
I haven't. Paul's like, I, that's the whole deal. Is I haven't ever given a deep, but he loved me more than I deserve. Let me ask you a couple questions. Is it too easy for you to believe that God loves you? It's possible that it might be too easy for you to believe that God loves you. This is a phenomenon in, in our generation that, that, that experts are saying has never happened before in any culture, in any history. In every culture, in every history, you always find glimpses of people who, 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 who realize that God was judging them. That they were worthy to be judged. Many people hid from God because of that. They didn't understand His grace. But we live for the first time where we're taught that you deserve it. You deserve a second chance. We all go like, hey, come on. You deserve a second chance. Right? If you, if you play AYSO soccer, you get a trophy. Everyone wins. Everyone deserves everything, right? Everyone deserves. Here's the problem. You know what the other epidemic now in, in our culture is? Depression is, is, is at an all-time high. Why? No one's thankful anymore. If you deserve all of these things, either you get what you deserve, and then are you thankful? No, I deserve it. He's lucky to have me. Or, or you don't get it. You don't get what you think you deserve. And now you're mad. You're depressed. I don't get fair. It's not fair. It leads to depression. It leads to a spiral. Here's a fact. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve God's grace. You don't deserve a second chance. But he's offering you. That's amazing. That's the gospel effect. Do you struggle with accepting that God loves you? Do you struggle with accepting that God loves you? Or are you always trying to earn it? That's pride. Pride is thinking that somehow you're going to be able to deserve it. And I'll just hold off on this God thing until I earn it. That's pride. Or thinking you deserve it. That's entitlement. Entitlement and pride are the two things that will keep you the farthest from his God. They'll keep you from worship. By grace, you are more than you deserve. Brennan Manning is one of my favorite authors. He says this. He says, Our huffing and puffing to impress God, our scrambling for brownie points, are thrashing about trying to fix ourselves while hiding our pettiness and wallowing in guilt are nauseating to God and are a flat-out denial of the gospel of grace. Understanding God loves you. Period. Not because you deserve it. Because He's chosen to love you. And that he's, He wants to use you not because of anything that you've done to prove yourself to Him, but because He just wants to use you. It's what we're talking about here. And, then, and, and in this, by grace, you are motivated to work hard. 
That's what Paul says. He says, by the grace of God, I work harder than all of them. What did, what, what did he do with his, the, what God did to him? did for him. He turned around and he offered his whole life. So I'm going to use my whole life now, all my energy, for serving this God, this great God. James tells us that faith without works is dead. What he basically says, Jesus' brother, what he's basically saying is this. Ladies, if he loves you, there would be some evidence, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying that you're not, you're not saved because of your good works. He's saying that you go out and you're motivated to do these good works because you're saved. What we're talking about here is, is, what, is what the Bible calls worship. Worship is anything that you do in response to who God is and what he's done on your behalf. Worship is anything that you do because you love God. In other words, God loves you so much, it should impact you. You would fall in love with him. You would give your life towards that. And then anything that you do in response to you, because you love him is worship. So sometimes we sing songs because we love him. We call that worship. Worship isn't, isn't boxed in with music. Everything that we do, our lives are lives of worship. Seeing his worship, responding to it, is worship. This guy, Dr. Bruce, I want the worship team come back up on that note. Dr. Bruce Leafblad, current author, theologian. He says this, this is the best, this is, I'm saying this, this is the best definition I've ever heard of worship. Well, if you want to listen, I'd encourage you. Worship is both an event and a lifestyle in which believers, by grace, center their minds, attention, and their hearts' affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to His greatness, His mighty acts, and His word. But Paul goes like this. He came to me, the least likely of anybody who God would come to and ask to follow him and be used by him. But he came to me, he says. He goes, and it wasn't in vain. He goes, what I did, I fell so in love with him that I've given the rest of my life, or I was doing anything that I can to try to serve him and make him known. He goes, even right now, I'm sharing to you what I received, because that's what it looks like. And he goes, why did I do that? Because, because I did it by the grace of God, because of the grace of God. I did it by the grace of God, because of the grace of God. In other words, what he's saying is this. By grace, you don't have to do anything. Oh, what if I become a Christian? Do I have to stop doing this? Do I have to do this? Do I have to... You ever heard that? I've asked that, right? <laughs> when I become a Christian, do I have to do this? Do I... What do I have to do, right? Because that's the economy that we live in. Oh, yeah, okay, oh, I'll do that. Well, what's it going to cost me? Right? Here's the thing. By grace, you don't have to do anything. And, by grace, you get to do 